from Red Bull. This is Beyond the Ordinary. Hello, my name's Nick Bright, and on this episode of Beyond the Ordinary, we have an amazing article from the Red Bulletin. This story, written by Mark Jenkins, is a reminder that you don't have to go far to create your own adventure. Cooped up by the pandemic, a crew of Wyoming outdoor athletes planned an informal local adventure event called the Laramie Brunch. It's a combination of biking, climbing and glacier lake crossing. No sponsors, no professional athletes, no prizes. You ride your own bike, whatever it may be, climb with your own gear and wear your own clothes. As you'll hear, the teams were under-equipped for the cold weather they encountered, underprepared in terms of equipment and lacking the necessary training. But it's all about the adventure. Words by Mark Jenkins. The so-called Laramie Brunch is a DIY triathlon of epic proportions that combines biking, climbing, and a glacial lake crossing. It's a tough reminder for these amateur athletes that one does not need airlines or mass start events to rediscover the soul and hard-earned joys of adventure. The lake is calm and the skies are leaden. We were hoping for a rocky mountain dawn, pink welkin with the promise of warm sunshine, but it is not to be. Dark clouds roll right above our helmeted heads, enveloping the towering rock ramparts. If it starts to rain, or more likely snow, our mission is over. We are shivering when we finally dismount from our heavily loaded steeds. It is daybreak, bleak and desolate. We've cycled 45 miles and gained 4,000 feet in the snowy range of southeastern Wyoming, which started from the plains at 7,000 feet up to Lake Marie at almost 11,000 feet. Martha can't feel her feet. Justin's on the edge of bonking. Alice is being stoic. We all pound trail food for the calories of heat and slug back electrolyte-laced water. Critical error number one, says Martha. I didn't bring enough warm clothes. I told her that her puffy winter jacket was overkill for this undertaking, so she left it at home. But now I see that there is still deep snow in the couloir between the stone faces. To warm up, we do jumping jacks together along the shore of the lake. We are two teams, Justin and Alice, Martha, my fiancé, and I. Justin unstraps a pack raft from the handlebars of his mountain bike, and I pull one from my panniers. We set to work inflating our tiny boats. Martha packs our rope and climbing gear and harnesses into two dry bags. Alice does the same with their mountain climbing equipment. Both pack rafts, four pound inflatable baby boats, are meant for one person, not two, let alone the addition of two heavy sacks of climbing gear. Our biggest fear is capsizing. Lake Marie was frozen solid a month ago, so the water is unbearably cold. Heart attack cold. We don't have wetsuits. I admonish Martha to be careful as she gets into the raft. I know, I know, she replies. She delicately kneels in the bow, and I get into the stern. My knees almost against her back. 
We push gently away from the bouldery bank and begin to paddle in unison, our two dry bags of climbing gear bobbing along behind us on a cord. I'm immediately paddling too hard. Don't go all Lewis and Clark, Martha says. I try to stay calm and match her pace. The water, thankfully, is tranquil. We paddle silently through the black water like Vikings on a raid. Trout are leaping here and there, their rings expanding. Massive antlered moose lurk along the shore, concealed in the shadows of the forest. A bald eagle, its white head visible against the black clouds, circles above us. The world is silent. Gliding across this alpine tarn, it feels as if we are floating through another time. A time before cars and traffic, overpopulation and pollution. A time when the sky and the earth, the lakes and the woods and the stars were still part of a human's life. A time that kept quiet and remained humble, confident in the intrinsic value of its own stark serenity. We thought it might take us an hour to raft across Lake Marie, especially if the wind kicked up. Instead, stroking in synchronization across the velvety water, humming Lake Marie by John Prine, we make the half-mile crossing in ten minutes. Alice and Justin follow close behind us, paddling smoothly, soundlessly. When our pack raft bumps against the boulders, Martha clambers out with a grin. That was more enjoyable than I expected, she whispers brightly. Leg two of six completed. I reply. We pull the raft out of the water and place rocks inside it to keep it from blowing away. We open our Walmart dry bags and are dismayed to find they are filled with lake water. All our gear is soaked, but there's nothing we can do. We cinch on our climbing harnesses, bandolier the climbing gear and slings across our chests, clip our rock shoes to our harnesses, and start tramping up the talus. Alice and Justin are just behind us. We have crossed the moat and are now working our way to the castle walls. Clouds have kept the sky dark, but the fat, furry marmots whistling to one another, sounding the alarm of our approach. We reach the base of the 700-foot face of the diamond, put on our rock shoes, and begin to climb, silently storming the castle. The confinement of COVID-19 had been driving us crazy. We had to do something. Something big but close. Something hard but possible. Something fun. Ever heard of the Jackson Hole picnic? Martha asked me one afternoon. She lived in Jackson for a summer. I shook my head. It's a mountain triathlon. Bike 20 miles from Jackson to Jenny Lake. Swim the 1.3 miles across. Hike up the Grand Teton, over 7,000 vert, then reverse it all. Sounds like a solid day, I said. We should create our own picnic, said Martha, right here in Laramie. We googled the Jackson Hole picnic. It was the brainchild of writer and photographer David Gonzalez. After failing twice, he finally did the picnic in 2012, in 23 hours out and back. Gonzalez says he named it the picnic for two reasons. 
You gotta bring a lot of food, and it's not an organized event. Gonzalez has since created a few other picnics in mountain towns in Montana and the Northwest. Always, participants have to do it on their own, totally self-supported. In truth, mountain climbers have been pedaling to their projects for at least a century. In 1931, brothers Franz and Tony Schmid bicycled south from Munich through the Alps to the base of the Matterhorn in Switzerland, made the first ascent of the notorious North Face, and then rode back home. Moreover, the word picnic has been used ironically in many alpine climbing tales, most notably in Felice Benuzzi's 1946 picturesque classic No Picnic on Mount Kenya. Benuzzi and two other Italians were being held as World War II prisoners of war in Kenya. They escaped the prison camp at night, trekked for days, climbed the north face of Mount Kenya, then returned across the savanna and snuck right back into the prisoner of war camp. Glorious. In five minutes, Martha and I mapped out our own six-leg picnic. Bike 45 miles from the Pedal House bike shop in Laramie, Wyoming, up to the snowy range. Cross Lake Marie by any means. Ascend the Medicine Bow Diamond, which consists of five pitches of technical rock climbing. Run or rappel off the mountain. Recross Lake Marie. Ride back to Laramie. You can get across Lake Marie any way you want. Swim, paddle, canoe. But everything has to be carried on your bike up and back, she declared. Boats, ropes, climbing gear, personal flotation devices, everything. After watching a couple YouTube Jackson Hole picnic videos, Martha said, Looks too much like a bro fest. We should require male and female teams. The next day, we pitched our idea to Joel Charles, chief bike mechanic at the Pedal House. I like the co-ed requirement, said Joel. Sausage and eggs. Why don't we call it the Laramie Brunch? So we did. It would be a local event for local outdoor athletes. No sponsors, no professional athletes, no prizes. You ride your own bike, whatever it may be. Climb with your own gear and wear your own clothes. By the end of the week, we had four two-person teams. Justin Bowen, age 28, a serious rock climber and grad student who has lived in Jackson Hole for six years, and his partner, Alice Steers, age 26, a serious cyclist and PhD candidate in botany who once rode from Missoula, Montana to Eugene, Oregon. Martha Tate, age 32, an emigration attorney, ice climber, globe trotter, and adventure gal, with me at 61 as her comrade. Amanda Harper, age 30, a mountain guide, mountain bike racer, co-director of the University of Wyoming Outdoor Program, and Joel Charles, age 42, sometime climber and former bike racer, father of Josie, age 3. Matt Hebbard, nicknamed Large, age 43, a former savage bike racer and present savage ice climber, father of two sweet daughters, and a mysterious female partner none of us had ever met. Large insisted her name was Rihanna and claimed she was a CrossFit badass, gorgeous as a model. We scheduled the Laramie brunch for the last weekend of July, 
Boulder-based photographer Greg Mianski drove up to document the fiasco, and my daughter, Addie, volunteered to be safety boater and cheerleader. She even made posters with slogans on, like, Are you suffering yet? How about now? And home stretch. She would wave them, shouting much-needed encouragement throughout the brunch. In terms of technical skills... The hardest part of the brunch would be climbing the chossy, 700-foot, glass-slick quartzite face of the Snowy Range Diamond. Because the rockfall risks on this obscure wall are so substantial, nobody climbs there except a handful of locals. Indeed, the chances of getting whacked by a falling rock were great enough that we decided only two teams could climb on the wall at the same time, on two separate routes, 200 horizontal feet apart. Two teams would do the brunch on Saturday, the other two on Sunday. It wasn't a race. It wasn't meant to be a suffer fest. The point was simply to push ourselves with our friends in the mountains and to finish. Off belay, I shout down at Martha, 200 feet off the deck on the diamond. I have been careful not to knock rocks on her. We are on a route called Overhang Direct first climbed in 1959 by Kay Hall and R. Nessel. I gobble a peanut butter and jelly sandwich while Martha climbs. When she gets to my stony ledge, she traverses over to the anchors, only to discover that the nylon webbing we put in just last weekend has been chewed through by marmots, the devil's scouts. Unbelievably, the next set of anchors, over 300 feet in the air, are also munched by marmots. Luckily, above the third pitch on the big overhang with lots of exposure and razor-sharp rock, the anchors are still intact. I lead the fourth pitch. Martha quickly leads the fifth pitch, and we run to the summit together. We have taken the castle. Halfway, I yell. Two and a half hours, says Martha, our fastest ascent yet. Surprisingly, the clouds have thinned and the weather improved. We can see far down onto the high plains, almost making out Laramie, 45 long miles away. It's all downhill from here, I say. We still have to paddle back across the lake, Martha reminds me. Martha eats her sandwich while I peer over the cliff looking for Alice and Justin. They are climbing a different route, called the Red Spot, first ascended by R. Frisbee, R. Jaco, and J. Matheson in 1965. I can't see my friends and call down into space. An unintelligible reply wafts up the wall. The threat of rain has vanished. We can relax. There is nothing quite so piquant as sitting on top of a mountain you have just climbed, staring out over the landscape. You are filled with a profound sense of satisfaction. You can sense the magnetic power of the planet. The Earth, after all, is just a big round stone. When we are gone, geology will continue. After an hour, Alice and Justin top out. We take the obligatory summit photo, all of us hugging and yahooing, then start hiking down the trail, back at our boats in half an hour. We repack the dry bags and prepare to paddle. I can't believe how calm the water still is, says Alice. 
The Norse gods are smiling down at us, and we know it. We slide back across shimmering Lake Marie, the water having transformed in the few past hours from murky black to teal blue. Again, John Prine's song floats with me. Five legs finished, says Justin, as we haul our boats out of the water. One leg left. We take our time collapsing our pack rafts, rolling them up and securing them to the bicycles. We dip water from the lake and drop in iodine pills. We eat again. I realize I have a flat and pump up my tire. Everything feels natural and unhurried. We saddle up and begin to ride. In just two miles, we surmount the 11,000-foot pass called Libby Flats, abruptly stop pedaling and fly down the mountain. At the base of the snowy range is a mountain town called Centennial with a population of 250. Centennial is 30 miles from Laramie, and according to our self-concocted brunch rules, food and beverages obtained in Centennial are allowed. We had passed through this one-horse town before dawn when everything was closed. There was a headwind, and we were naturally looking forward to a tailwind on the way home. Alas, during the day, the wind shifted 180 degrees, so now we have a headwind riding back. This seems downright unfair, so we dismount, stable our steeds, pull up chairs on the patio at the bare-bottom bar and grill, and order pitchers of cold beer and platters of tater tots. I thought this was going to be a sufferfest, says Martha, popping a tot in her mouth. Me too, adds Alice. Pouring himself another beer, Justin says, I feel better already. Justin is riding his fat, tired mountain bike with clipless pedals, but no cleats on his shoes. This doesn't bother him a bit. I'm sure there are serious cyclists who would question the wisdom of stopping for pints of strong IPA before riding the final 30 miles of a mountain triathlon. But that's just the way we do it in Wyoming. Besides, tater tots have been scientifically proven to be the perfect food for long bike rides. We hang out, eating and drinking, and telling stories for two hours before saddling up and riding away. We are ostensibly two teams of two, but in actuality, from the first minute on our bikes, we have been a team of four. With encouragement from Greg and Addie every 10 miles, we roll back into Laramie just after 5 p.m. In total, it's been 15 hours for 90 miles of biking, one mile of boating, a thousand feet of rock climbing, and several long rest and fuel breaks. Martha and I sleep like dead Vikings, but manage to rally the next morning drive up into the snowies, and hike up the back of the diamond by 11 a.m. Greg is leaning over the face, taking photos and fiddling with his drone. The two Sunday teams, Harper and Joel, Large and Rihanna, are somewhere on the face below. Martha and I drink cold beers waiting for them to summit, shouting down words of harassment. They too chose to start at Petal House at 2 a.m., 
They've been moving for over 10 hours when they finish the wall and clamber onto the top of the diamond. But look, there are only three of them. Martha and I were expecting to meet Large's glamorous hotshot. Where's Rihanna? I cry. The threesome break into laughter. We have been snookered. Rihanna never existed. The CrossFit babe was only an adventure avatar. Large couldn't find a female partner, so he made one up for us. They worked together as a threesome all along. They even wore matching red onesies. Harper carried her gear on her crossbike, using a giant seat bag and handlebar bag. Joel rode one of his old steel frame racing bikes with no panniers or gear. Large rode his 40-pound, $5,000 cargo bike with almost all the team gear. Ropes, wetsuits, everything, in a big black box. It was not a happy arrangement. The ride up here totally crushed me, admits Large, standing on the summit of the diamond. He looks dead and is only halfway done. They opt to repel the face while Martha, Greg, and I walk down. Back at the edge of Lake Marie, the threesome slowly stretch into full-length wetsuits. They will swim rather than paddle. They pull on large rubber flippers, step into the water backwards, and then, using dry bags for flotation, start swimming. Their crossing of Lake Marie is painfully slow because Large barely knows how to swim. I hate water, Large bellows. He is on his back, holding the dry bag on his chest like an otter, kicking as best he can. But he doesn't know how to flutter kick. Instead, he kicks as if he were pedaling a bike, frantically pounding his legs straight down. Martha, Greg, and I are in the safety canoe and find it all hilarious. Large disagrees. This is the longest I've been in the water in my life, he yells. Joel and Harper seem to be having a good time, flutter kicking and chatting away. They swim beside Large as psychological support. At one point, I truly worry for him. His face is gray and his eyes pinched. He looks like he might start sinking. Nevertheless, he eventually makes it to the far shore. I told you I hate water, he roars from the bank. They all drink mimosas with friends and family alongside Lake Marie, drying out their wetsuits in the sun while we load the canoe back onto my car. Large rallies with a little beverage. Eventually, the threesome saddle up and grind slowly over the pass. On the way down out of the mountains, Large never touches his brakes. He passes us at 50 miles per hour. They buy snacks in Centennial, but do not tarry. The weather, which has been bluebird all day, is turning. Thunderclouds are filling the sky, casting black shadows across the plains. The wind is blowing uncharacteristically from the east. An upslope wind portends poor weather in these parts. Large, Joel, and Harper battle this headwind all the way back to Laramie. It looks exhausting. On a bike, wind is always worse than an uphill. They are racing directly into a storm, hoping to beat it. And they almost do. Just two miles from Laramie, they get caught. Buckets of rain and pelting hail. The wind swirls like a dervish. To the north, they spot a funnel cloud, which gives them sufficient inspiration to get the damn ride done. 
Sometime after 6 p.m., they slosh up to the pedal house. It had been more than 16 hours of suffering. That night, Martha and I had a party at our house for everyone who had made the inaugural Laramie Brunch a success. We had packed boxes of local pizza and all kinds of local beer. Addie made twice-baked potatoes that disappeared immediately. Justin showed up first with more beer. He was in high spirits. I feel great. He said he actually had gone to the gym in the afternoon. It was too wet to climb hard, so he pumped iron instead. Justin and I immediately started planning our next adventure together, a new route on the north face of the Grand Teton. Alice arrived next. She cycled to our house in the pouring rain, not giving it a thought. She looked like she was ready to do it all over again. I feel just fine, she said brightly. She was leaving the next morning for a backpacking trip across the Grovant mountain range in northern Wyoming. Harper showed up with more beers and friends. I'll do it next year, she said excitedly. When Large and Joel finally arrived, Large was wearing an expedition down parka. He was still so cold. He was wiped. He slouched on the couch and could barely speak. Perhaps the gods were punishing him for poaching the event without a proper partner. But Joel was in fine form, telling stories of his bike racing days in Boulder. He hadn't ridden a bike for a decade and thanked Martha for coming up with an adventure that got him back on the bike. He said the final stretch into Laramie brought back corporal feelings he hadn't had since he stopped racing. We all told stories. That's what we humans do. Martha told one about running a half marathon in the excruciating heat of Alexandria, Egypt. Justin had a tale of living in a van and ice climbing in Kyrgyzstan. I told the story of getting sepsis on a bike ride across Russia. Everybody had their own tale of struggle and perseverance, failure and triumph. Everyone had their own epic. That is the nature of the tribe of outdoor athletes. As everyone was leaving, Alice thanked us and said, the whole reason I did this was I needed something to look forward to. COVID has made us feel like prisoners. This was a wonderful escape. Felice Benuzzi, World War II prisoner of war, would be proud. This article was taken from the Red Bulletin. Read more at theredbulletin.com.